you've been in the book of Daniel, and I think the big idea in the entire book of Daniel is that despite all appearances, God is in control. And today, I just keep having to pray that. Despite the way things look, God, I know that you're in control. And continually praying, God, you just make things right. As the exiles, I'm sure, did. And so we're continuing in Daniel today. We're going to continue, and we're going to be essentially reaching the halfway point today as we finish up chapter 6. As we've been discussing, um, one of the fundamental ways that the New Testament calls us to view our place in this world is as exiles, as citizens of heaven, of a perfect world, but who are currently living here at the moment. And so that's why we're in the book of Daniel, because we recognize that. And the book of Daniel was written by exiles for exiles. And what we have found is that one of the fundamental instructions from God to the exiles, and particularly Daniel and the Israelites at this time, was to retain their unique identity as followers of God, but still to seek the welfare of the city <clears throat> where I've sent you into exile and to pray to the Lord on its behalf. The instruction from Jeremiah chapter 29. And so we're looking at how we do this. How do we continue to follow God in a world that doesn't? And how can we seek the welfare of our city? How can we seek to serve the world? In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. <clears throat> And this is what we're going to see today. Um, this is pretty much what we'll see today um, in chapter 6. That Daniel, through his good deeds, is criticized and he's accused of doing wrong. And now many of the stories in the book of Daniel are very well known. Um, we're very familiar with a lot of the, the stories from Daniel, right? And they're popular not just in the church but in the broader culture as well. Like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, we are very familiar with that one. Um, we're familiar with the writing on the wall and the saying that the writing is on the wall. We talked about that last week. And today, I think we're coming up to what is the most, I think, famous or well-known story in the entire book of Daniel, and that is Daniel in the lion's den. Now, who has heard of this story before, right? You were probably taught this story at some point as a kid, Daniel in the lion's den. It's a favorite of Sunday school teachers, preachers, and everyone, right? Very famous story. It's even, it's very well appreciated by artists, and artists throughout history have loved this story, and they've, they've depicted it in a variety of ways. Um, lots of artists have painted this from, from the Renaissance now on, and this is a great example of, of just one of the many famous paintings of this, this story, and I just love how the, the contrast of Daniel's, his cloak here, it really just brings your eyes to him, and you see him standing in front of the lions here. And this next one, this next one I think is a little better because you can actually see Daniel's face. And you can see that in the face of these, these hungry lions, these terrifying beasts, that, that Daniel has this peace about him. You can see that he has this peace. And one of, I think, the best pieces of art um, that expresses this um, was by um, Rubens in the 1500s. It's currently held at the National Gallery of Art in D.C., 
It was painted in the 1500s, and it's a beautiful work. And I just want you to look at this and just look at the peace that Daniel has in his face on this one. You can just really see that in the face, when faced with these beasts, Daniel is just calm and collected. Yeah, you're right. That's not the original artwork. This next one is. <laughs> Try to be a little better. Try to get it in there. It's like, do we have one more? I, I played it. There are a few other. I guess. Is that all of them? Okay. Good. The other ones were even worse than that one. I love art. This is a well-known story. And this story has a lot of parallels um, to Daniel chapter 3 and to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace where, where they were facing what looked like imminent death. Um, they were faced with the choice to deny God or get thrown into the furnace. And this, this is going to be pretty similar. It's going to have a lot of parallels to that chapter, but it'll be slightly different because for Daniel, it's a bit simpler. It's not that he is pressured to do something. It's that he's pressured to stop something. He had this daily habit of praying three times a day. And then it was made illegal to pray to God. And so what is he going to do? Is he going to stop, stop this daily habit of following God or not? Or is he going to keep praying? And the big idea that we're going to see today is that just like the whole book shows that despite all appearances, God is in control and he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. And in chapter 6, I think this big idea is that God gives us his faithfulness, and so we can give him ours. Because God is faithful to us and turning towards us, that we can be faithful to him and turn towards him. And now, if you remember last week um, from Daniel chapter 5 and the writing on the wall, you'll remember that that was essentially the end of Babylon. Um, the Medes and the Persians came in. And they killed King Belshazzar, and they redid the entire empire, and now they're in control. And if you look at the history of Babylon, you see that that was really the decline of the empire. It pretty much goes all downhill from here. And Daniel had to live through these successive changes and new kings and new rulers and new empires, one after another. But despite all of those changes and despite the decline of Babylon, Daniel and his faith stayed the same. He stayed pretty even keel. All of these changes didn't throw him out of whack. They didn't change the way that he followed after God. And I think this is one of the most powerful aspects of the story. And I think this is what we need today. And this is what, what I need today. That regardless of what is happening around me, can I remain faithful to God? And as the story gets going, we'll see another little parallel to chapter 3. And that is that Daniel's success as a ruler... And his devotion and faith is going to lead to a bad place, essentially, right? Like his faith and his excellence doesn't lead to everything going well. It actually has the opposite effect. It's because of his faithfulness, it's because of his integrity that he's faced with suffering. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at, at what Daniel has in his faith that allows him to keep this integrity, to keep this character, to continue to follow God even when it's hard. And I think what we're going to see is that it's his relationship with God in prayer. It's his commitment to turning to God in prayer over and over, whether it's easy or difficult. And that is going to be the most beautiful part of this story. 
So if you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 6, or have your Bible on to Daniel chapter 6, we'll also have it on the screens here. Let's look at this. Let's see what we find in Daniel chapter 6. We'll read through essentially the whole thing, a few verses at a time here. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, I don't know why they don't translate the word satrap here. Um, I kind of want my money back almost. Like, hey, this is a translation. Tell me what satrap is. But sometimes there are some words in the Bible when they just decide that the original word here is the best and you just need to go find a dictionary and figure out what it actually means. There are a few words like this. Seraphim is one of them. Look into a dictionary sometime and see what you find. Anyway, but the name for satrap literally means protector of the province. Protector of the province. And so essentially, this is like a governor, and Daniel has risen to the rank so high that he is like the head governor. He's almost like a prime minister ruling over all of these governors. And so, of course, the other leaders are jealous. We see this in verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they were jealous of Daniel's power, of his ability, and, and it almost seemed like everything this guy did was successful. It worked out. He climbed the ladder. He was a good worker, and he was a good guy, which is really annoying, right, when someone has it all? Because we know it's rare, and it's hard to find someone who does both. I think we know plenty of people who are are really good and really kind and really moral, but then they're kind of late all the time, or maybe they're just a little too easygoing that nothing they do is really of that high quality. Or then we know some people who are like on it, and they're, they're going to show up early with Excel sheets ready to go, but maybe they're a little uptight, or they're kind of rude, or maybe they're just not great in social situations. Like It's, it's hard to be both. It's very rare. But Daniel here apparently has it all. And not only does he have that, but he has high-quality character, right, where he, he seems to follow the law of God great. And he has the best of both worlds. He has it all. And there's no gap between his personal life and his private life, which, again, is very rare. And we know, eventually, like, if someone is a different person at home than they are in public, eventually the private life catches up to you, right? I mean, we've heard it time after time. A politician, um, an athlete, a lot of the times, where they'll rise up through the ranks, all of a sudden they'll become famous, and then something from their private life pops up, or something from their private life gets brought to light forever. Happens all the time. There's actually an entire industry now um, that's dedicated to cleaning up your online presence, right? You basically hire a company to come in and to look at your presence on the internet 
your social media, your emails, your shopping, everything, and they clean it up for you. They make it look good. They make it spotless. It's hugely popular. The online reputation management industry, as it's called, is currently a $1.2 billion per year industry, and it's expected to grow to $2 billion by 2025. So there's a lot of money being spent on just making sure that our private lives stay private and that the rest of the world doesn't know about it, that we can clean up our image. Because we recognize, I think, that if there are serious problems at home, most of the time that's going to translate at work. You can't just expect to walk in the door and leave that at the door. And at the same time, we recognize that if there are problems at work, then we, we know that that's also going to go home as well. But Daniel here, Daniel is faithful in all areas of his life. He's the same guy at work, the same God follower at work as he is at home and in all of his life. And I think this part about Daniel, it forces us to ask ourselves that same question of are we being faithful in all the areas of our life? Are we being consistent followers of God in every area of our life? And the thing about this that we have to recognize is that if we're going to be faithful in one area, we have to recognize it's all connected. That our faithfulness in life permeates every aspect of our life. And so if we're going to be unfaithful in one area, we have to recognize that's going to affect everything. If we are going to be, if we want to be like a great Christian who's faithful to God and disciplined, but we're not showing that same discipline and we're not showing that faithfulness at work, then we have to know that it's going to work both directions and eventually one will bleed into the other. And most of the time, it's the unfaithfulness at work that would then bleed into our faith. Jesus explained the meaning of his parable on the shrewd manager in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. When he explained the meaning that Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches or spiritual health? And so when we look at how do we be more faithful to God, how do we be more committed to God in our faith, frankly, I think we can also look at some of the very basic, very practical aspects of our life. Are we being faithful at work? If we're... Uh, an engineer or a construction worker, or if we're in medicine, are we doing that to the best of our ability? Because that's going to affect the way that we also approach our faith. Maybe we have a job that we don't want to do forever. Maybe we're a barista or we work at a store. The way that we are doing that now even is still going to be the way that we approach our faith. Maybe we don't have the faith that we want, but nonetheless, are we doing it to the best of our ability? So when we're faithful to our work, even our small work, even the work that we don't want to do forever, that is going to affect the way that we approach everything else, and especially our faith, because it's all connected and it works in both directions. And so we have to ask ourselves, I think when looking at Daniel in this chapter, we have to ask ourselves, am I being faithful with what I've been given? Am I being faithful with this life that God has given me and with the people around me, with the job I have? with the relationships I have? Am I being faithful in these areas? Am I being faithful with what I've been given? The next thing to notice when we see that these guys were jealous of Daniel and they were coming after him, 
is that true Christ-like character will almost always lead to conflict, right? This is the same point we talked about in Daniel chapter 3. I'm not creative enough to come up with a new one. And I think that this is still the same thing that's being taught just again. That if we are going to live like Christ, if we're going to follow him faithfully, then that is going to lead to conflict with the world because that will inevitably cast judgment or be a threat to those who don't live that way, right? And I think this is what we see again displayed in chapter 6, that living faithfully with high integrity will immediately cause those who aren't living that way to be at conflict with us. Right? We talked about this before, and it's the same story again, same story again. But I do think we have to recognize, right, that we are in the conflict for the right reasons, because I know that oftentimes Christians are in conflict for the wrong reasons, right? It's not because we were so Christ-like. Maybe it's because we were rude or we were drawing the wrong lines or it wasn't because we were being like Christ, right? I know this happens too. I've met some Christians before and I know this is a possibility, right? It's a pretty low standard to become a Christian. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, great. That means we're going to make mistakes, right? And we're going to have these issues. And so it's important if we do find ourselves in these situations, is it for the right reasons? Is it because we were acting like Christ or could it be because of something else? One of the most fascinating parts about the entire book of Daniel is that it never mentions Daniel sinning at all, which first off, we know it's not true. We know that Daniel did sin. He wasn't perfect, but this is unique in the scriptures. The scriptures is very honest about people's faults and about their sins. If you were going to be featured or included in scriptures, we know that that meant basically your dirty laundry was going to be aired out for the world, right? David had everything out in the open, all the kings, Peter, all the disciples, all of their faults and their sins are out in the open, and we got to see them and hear about them. But with Daniel, we don't have any of that, and it's not because he was perfect. We know that, but it's because there was a specific purpose about highlighting Daniel's innocence, about showing how he is, in essence, an archetype of Jesus. He is basically a living prophecy for Jesus' situation. And we're going to see a lot of parallels in this chapter in the way that nothing that Daniel did wrong led to him being thrown in the lion's den. It's like nothing Jesus did wrong led to him being thrown or up on the cross. And at the end, the ruler is going to say, hey, I don't find any fault with him, but I guess you guys want to put him to death, so we'll do that. And so the reason that Daniel doesn't have any sin, it's not because he was perfect, it's because he was displaying this same aspect of Christ. And there's going to be that, that parallel there. And so Daniel, he's doing pretty well, doesn't seem to have any problems, doesn't seem to have any sin. And so what do you do when someone is so good at the game that you can't beat them? You just change the game, right? Change the rules. And so this is what they do in verse 6. So these administrators and satraps, they went as a group to the king, and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered, 
in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so King Darius put the decree in writing. First, can we just acknowledge that they don't have a jail, they just go straight to the lion's den? What is that? <laughs> like, like, why not just have a holding cell, but I guess straight to the lions. That's what they do in Babylon. Um, but now there's a problem, because as we saw in the beginning, it seems like Darius and Daniel have a pretty good relationship, and Daniel is pretty high up. And it sounds like the king actually likes Daniel, but the king here was basically pressured and tricked into doing this, and it's going to lead to him losing I think the one guy that he needs the most, the guy that is basically running his kingdom for him. Um, but nonetheless, he's going to do it. Um, jump ahead to verse 10. Or I guess, well, we are on verse 10. So verse 10, um, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Daniel's guilty. He just broke the law. He broke the king's decree. And now I don't think that Daniel was just planning um, to go out and to break the law and to make this big public act of civil disobedience. I don't think he was planning that at all. This is just what he did every day. This was just his life. It wasn't that he was a disobedient guy and then that's why he prayed. It's, was, it's that he was a praying guy and that's why he disobeyed, right? And we remember in, in chapter 1 that Daniel didn't do something that he was asked to do. He was asked to eat the meat and drink the wine and he said, I won't do that. And now it's like it's flipped. Now it's something that Daniel won't stop doing. It's, hey, stop praying, stop doing this, and Daniel won't. And I've heard it many times before. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the churches I used to work in, average age was about like between 75 and 85. And at this point, Daniel is probably in his mid-80s. And I've heard it a million times um, from gentlemen in their 80s that I've done this for 80 years and I'm not going to stop now, <laughs> right? Or this is the way I am, and you are not going to change me now. Don't expect that. And oftentimes, we don't like that, and we see, oh, this person's stuck in their ways, or they're doing this. But frankly, in a lot of cases, this is just commitment. <laughs> this is commitment and faithfulness. And in the case of Daniel, he's now in his 80s, and he's like, this is what I do. I pray three times a day, and you're not going to stop me now. This is still who I am and what I'm going to do. And when it comes to prayer, I think that's something we can be stuck in our ways about. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to pray every day. I'm just going to have this boring routine of turning to God in prayer three times a day every day. And that is, that is a good thing. May we be consistent and faithful and maybe even stubborn in this. Daniel prayed every day. 
And he wasn't going to stop just because the rules are changed now. And this is, this is pretty amazing because, frankly, it would have been easy to take a day off, right? Like, hey, we get it. You've done this for 80 years. Just take a day off. <laughs> like, you can skip one day. Like, I think God knows you're faithful. Like, you've been doing this in exile for a long time. You'll be okay. You'll be forgiven, right? Or at least just, like, maybe don't do it by the window, Daniel. Just a thought. Maybe do it, you know, in the closet or somewhere else. But Daniel's like, no. I've been working my whole life towards developing this relationship with God in prayer, and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. I'm not going to stop. And he developed this, this practice and this rhythm in his life, and so he continued doing it. He turned to God in prayer. And most believe that Daniel's unique prayer habits are based on some kind of combination of 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple was dedicated, um, and that's the, that's the reason that he turned towards Jerusalem, because there's no command in scriptures that you must face Jerusalem or that you must pray three times a day. And so most believe that Daniel was just remembering the fact that God's presence was in the temple and that the sacrifices at the temple were taking place three times a day. And so Daniel, using that to remember and to turn to that place in prayer, he practiced that. It's that combined with, I think, the instructions from Jeremiah that we read in the beginning to pray on behalf of Babylon, to seek the welfare of Babylon. And so Daniel just turned this into his prayer routine. It wasn't something commanded or instructed. He just found any way he could to get himself to commit to prayer. And this is what worked for him. This is what he decided. Three times a day, I'm going to go up to my room, I'm going to face Jerusalem, and I'm going to pray to God. But that led to the lion's den. So verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. Right? He's realizing he has to answer all the emails now. And so at first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children, and before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. That's usually the part that gets left out of the Sunday school teaching, um, which, for good reason, like, that's pretty uncomfortable, and we recognize that wasn't God ordering that or God doing this. This was just a crazy, unbelieving king who decided to have a lion's den instead of jail. This is just the way this guy operates, and so that's what he did. Verse 25. 
King Darius wrote to all the nations and all the peoples of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and have reverence for the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus of Persia. So that's the story. That's Daniel in the lion's den. A man so devoted to prayer, so devoted to being faithful to God, and who had developed this faithfulness that it led to him facing imminent death. But yet he still made the choice to follow God. He still made the choice to follow God, even when it was difficult. And here's, here's what we see in this. One of the things I think we see is that faithfulness in prayer, I don't think it just happens. I don't think we can just decide one day this is what we're going to do and then that's it. I don't think there's any shortcut or technological aid that can help us to develop this. I don't think there's anything other than a lifelong commitment to doing this and time and time again of making the decision to turn to God in prayer. Right? But Daniel did this and it takes time. It takes time to develop a rhythm and a habit of prayer of turning to God. It's not just going to happen. But I think we recognize that that's kind of the way it should be. A anything that is worth doing typically takes time, right? Typically it can't just happen right away. And I think the question that this causes us to ask is that, frankly, even if our prayer life, even if the practice of our faith is going to lead to the lion's den, are we in it just for the results or what we can get out of it? Or are we in it just because we want to practice our faith? And I think that we have to ask ourselves, do I love the practice of faith or just the results, just the fruit? Because I think when it comes to following God, it's important for us to actually value that following, not just what we get out of him, not just the results of our faith, but actually the practice of turning to him. Actually, the practice of being with him. Actually, him. Loving him. And this is especially important because the practice of our faith is what we have control over. We don't have control over the results. Daniel did not have control over whether or not this would lead to the lion's den or another promotion. But nonetheless, he chose, I'm just going to commit to the practice of praying to God. And I think we have to love the practice of our faith. We have to commit to the practice of our faith, not just the results. Now, NBA, NBA star Steph Curry is one of the best three-point shooters in NBA history. He's currently second all-time, and he owns dozens of three-point records. He owns the record for, for the most threes in a season, in a month, in a week, and in a game. He makes a lot of threes. And Curry is well-known for having intense practices, and for practicing a lot of the things that no one else wants to practice, like even down to the fundamentals of where on the ball his hands are placed. And this is a guy at the top of his game who still spends about an hour every day just catching the ball and making sure his hands are in the right place. Simple fundamentals here. Just working on these little things over and over again. And he says, this is something you have to practice because it's not something that anyone is ever born with, with these fundamentals. 
And when asked why more people don't work on this and why people make fun of him for working on it, he said that quite simply, players and sometimes coaches are impatient with the process. We rush things. And I've been guilty of this. A lot of players want to practice their shooting technique one day, one week, or one month and expect to be knocking down threes. I decided that I was going to focus on what I could control, how much I practiced. I try to love the process and not just the results. So he's decided, I love practice. I love working on this. And that's translated into game time. It's translated to results. And I think this is, frankly, brilliant advice from a basketball player on the way that we should approach our faith, on controlling what we can control. And we're not meant to have control over the results. That's kind of the point of faith, that we don't do things in order to get a certain outcome. Uh, we do them because we're called to it. For God's sake, we're invited to come to him over and over again and to never stop praying, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of if it is easy or difficult. To dedicate ourselves to the practice of daily prayer because, frankly, we are in complete control of that. We're in, completely, we're in complete control of that. And so I want to challenge us this week to do this. I think this passage is an easy one to pull an application out of, right? Sometimes we have applications, sometimes we don't because they're so spiritual. This one's pretty simple. And so I want to challenge us to do exactly what Daniel did, okay? Can we try this this week? I think we have a lot of things to pray about. So maybe this week, can we try to pray three times a day? Morning, noon, and night. To commit. Tomorrow, Monday, we're going to pray three times a day. We're going to pray in the morning, whether it's five minutes, five seconds, whether we just start off with, God, I want to pray three times this week. Amen. Just start it. Just control that aspect. And I want us to commit to praying three times this week. Morning, noon, and night. Is that possible? Think so? I did that on purpose to get your attention. <laughs> I think it's possible. I think it's possible that we can pray morning, noon, and night. But here's the thing. It's not necessarily going to be easy, and I recognize this. I have tried various different prayer practices and rhythms over my life. And a few things that I always struggle with, the first one, I don't have bullet points for this, but you could write this down, but the first one is that you're going to have to fight distractions, okay? Fight distractions in order to focus on prayer. Because as we talked about last week, right, our faith and our, our relationship with God is often determined by the effort we put in, right? We talked about it last week. If you spend five hours on TikTok and five minutes in your Bible, you'll probably be more shaped by TikTok than the Bible, right? Or, or if you spend, you know, an hour listening to political commentary and then like, uh, you know, five minutes listening to Bible commentary, well, you'll probably view the Bible through your political lens and not your politics through your biblical lens, right? We know that if there's an imbalance, that this is a problem and that all these other things in the world are fighting for our attention and they're fighting for us to worship them, to focus on them, to give them our effort and not God. And so this is hard. I think we have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge that it's going to be difficult. We're not going to face a lion's den, but praying at noon is hard. And I know some of you are thinking, you know, I don't know how I'm going to carve that time out during my lunch break. Like, I don't even take a lunch break. Or, or I don't have time. I have so much I have to do. But I think it's doable. I think that we can set aside this time 
to pray morning, noon, and night, to grow in faithfulness, to just make the decision. God, I know that there is a lot that I have to pray about. I know that there is a lot that I want to just turn to you about. And committing to him three times, morning, noon, and night, to not just get caught up in the responsibilities, because I imagine Daniel was a busy guy, right? He was ruling all these governors. He probably had full days and a lot of responsibilities, but nonetheless, he did it. He did it. Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? Because busyness and sin often have the same effect. They cut off our connection with God. Cause us to forget about him. And the fact is, what I think, is that you're a lot more likely to encounter the enemy in like the notification on your phone while you're trying to pray than you will with some evil emperor who's going to throw you into a lion's den. All the little distractions of this world that try to pull us away from God. Now, I'm not anti-cell phone. I'm just anti-Satan, and I, and I think cell phones are Satan. Okay, that's it. <laughs> but nonetheless, we're going to have to fight distractions, right? We're going to have to fight distractions in order to protect this prayer time, in order to make the decision. I'm going to silence this. I'm going to cut this off. I'm going to get an app that blocks this, and I'm going to commit to praying morning, noon, and night. Second struggle that I think we have to recognize, if we're going to commit to praying three times a day, we have to remember that God is with us even in exile. I think this is one of the most important things to remember when it comes to us turning to God, remembering that he is the one who's turned towards us, that he's the one who's faithful to us. Because for Daniel, we remember he is living miles away from Babylon. His hometown is still in rubble. A lot of his family and friends have been killed. He's now in his 80s when there was a prophecy in his teen years that said, we're going home in two years. Now it's been about 60-something, and he's still stuck in Babylon. And I'm sure he was tempted at times to think, God has forgotten about me. Uh, God is not still with me here. God is probably over in Israel. He's not here with me in Babylon. And things kept changing. Laws kept getting worse and more tough for him. But Daniel remembered who God is and that God is faithful to us even when we're in exile, even when we're, when we're far away. That God never abandons his people, even when they're in exile. And Daniel has an understanding of this, of God's faithfulness. And it's because of that that he can be faithful. And I think this is going to be critical for us as we consider how we can be faithful. Start with remembering God's faithfulness. Maybe this is the way that you start your prayer of just thanking God that even if you haven't been turning to him three times a day, that he does too and just recognizing his presence, just recognizing that he is always going to be faithful to you. And so I want us to commit to this this week. I'll be doing it alongside of you. I'll be trying my best to pray three times, morning, noon, and night. And I think those two things are going to be helpful as we try to do this, fight distractions, and remember who God is. Remember that he's faithful. Remember that even... If following God is not as easy as we'd like it to be or, frankly, as it should be, that nonetheless, because he has been faithful to us, we can be faithful to him. It was in 155 AD that the Roman Empire, they now control the world, and, and 
the Roman emperor, he decided that, that all the Christians in the area would be sought out. They're becoming a problem in the empire. They're going to be summoned before the court, and they're going to be asked to not worship Jesus anymore. And if they refuse to do that, then they're going to be punished. And it wasn't unlike Darius and Daniel's situation. And in a town called Smyrna on the east coast of modern-day Turkey, a group of Christians were accused of breaking this law. They were worshiping God, and they weren't apologizing for it. They weren't worshiping the emperor, and they just would not deny God. And the emperor tortured them, and they locked them up, and they did everything they could, but these guys would not deny Christ. And so the emperor thought, well, let's go after the leader. Let's go after the leader and figure out his deal. The leader was the bishop Polycarp. Have you ever heard of Polycarp before? Probably heard the story. Very famous story. And they went to Polycarp and they said, hey, these people are not denouncing Christ. They're still doing this. Make them stop. Polycarp said, no, I'm not going to make them stop. So he was offered a bargain. Okay, well, then you deny Christ and we'll, we'll forget about this whole thing. We'll let everyone else go. We'll let you go. We'll be good. Polycarp said no. So Polycarp was tied to a post in the middle of one of the Roman Colosseums. He was taken to the Colosseum. He was pretty old at this time. He was an elderly man. And he was taken into the arena, and he was told to deny the atheists, because at that time, Christians were called atheists because they wouldn't believe in the Roman gods. History's weird. And so when told to deny the atheists, he looked over at the Roman pagans, and he pointed at them, and he said, I deny those atheists. It's like, you're going to be a smart aleck right now, Polycarp. And so, being very upset, the proconsul said, deny Christ. Polycarp responded, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That's a commitment. 86 years have I served him. He's done me no wrong. I'm not going to stop today. You're not changing me today. That's steady practice. That is something that takes years of commitment towards. And frankly, that's the kind of faith that God makes available to us. The kind of faith God makes available to us. As we might not face a lion's den, but we might be faced with a cell phone that is constantly competing for our attention. Or we might be faced with the temptation to think that God has abandoned us because of all the things that are happening. Or that maybe God is not in control because things are just a mess. And when faced with these temptations, this is the faith that God makes available to us. And we can remember that, that because Jesus overcame the lion's den, the, the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out of that like, yeah, I'm fine. Because of that and because of God's faithfulness to us, we can turn to him and be faithful to him. And we can turn to him in daily prayer. We can commit in a day to praying to him morning, noon, and night. Can we do that? Deal? Well, let's pray. Father God, we just pause now and turn our attention to you. We just thank you for always being there and always having your attention towards us. We ask that you would empower us this week to seek you more faithfully. Would you remind us in the morning to turn to you in prayer? Would you remind us at noon to turn to you in prayer and, 
And before we go to bed at night, God, it is our desire to seek you above anything else. And so this week, would you help us to fight the distractions that would try to pull our attention away from you? Would you help us to not believe the lie that you have abandoned us and that you are not good, but to know that despite all appearances that you are in control, you are faithful to us and you are with us even here in exile and you as we live on this fallen world. And God, would you just develop a faithfulness of common ground? Would you release through your Holy Spirit a power that would lead people to being people of your family, people who are committed to you, people who encounter you, people who fall in love with the process of turning to you. Would you just give us that faithfulness one more?